Hello, this is the UCLA Housing Voice podcast. I'm Shane Phillips. Before introducing this episode and our guest, I'd like to quickly share that the Lewis Center and Institute of Transportation Studies are holding our first in-person UCLA Arrowhead Symposium since 2019, and this year our focus will be on housing. It's happening at Lake Arrowhead from October 16th to the 18th. There are still some tickets available for purchase, and they include everything, registration, lodging, and meals for the two-and-a-half-day event. If you live in California and work on housing in some capacity, or if you work in transportation and see housing policy as something that'll influence your work in the coming years, we invite you to attend. I'll be there along with the Housing Voice co-hosts, as well as a bunch of very smart housing scholars, policymakers, and practitioners. You can learn more about this year's program and register at www.uclaarrowheadsymposium.org. Our guest this time is Professor Tuka Sarima from Aalto University and Helsinki Graduate School of Economics, both in Finland, and our topic is housing transfer taxes. We review what transfer taxes are early in this interview, so I'll keep the intro short and just say that this was a great and I think very clear discussion of the benefits and possible drawbacks of using transfer taxes to generate additional government revenue. The detailed nature of Finland's administrative data gives us insights into the impacts of policy that are often hard to duplicate in the U.S. since the data quality just isn't at the same level. So we're able to benefit from what they're learning 5,000 miles away. Higher, more progressive transfer taxes have been adopted by quite a few U.S. cities in recent years, and they're on the ballot here in Los Angeles in November, so it's a subject with very immediate concrete relevance to many of our listeners. The Housing Voice podcast is a production of the UCLA Lewis Center for Regional Policy Studies, and we receive production support from Claudia Bustamante and Olivia Arena. You can send feedback or show ideas to shanephillips at ucla.edu, and you can give us a five-star rating and a review at Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Now let's get to our conversation with Professor Sarima. Tuukka Sarima is Assistant Professor of Economics at Aalto University and Helsinki Graduate School of Economics, and he's here today to talk about a subject dear to my heart, real estate transfer taxes. Professor Sarima, welcome to the Housing Voice podcast. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. And Pavo Mankinen, also of Finnish descent, is here as my co-host today. Welcome, Pavo. Terve, Shane. Mitä kuuluu, Tuka? Hyvä kuuluu, kiitos. Yes, I did it. Okay. Uh, as always, we start out with a tour from our guest. I know we are just a few months too late for the International Social Housing Conference that was held in June, so we missed the chance to check out the city then. But tell us about Helsinki a little bit. What are the go-to spots you like to take friends and colleagues who visit the city? Yeah, so if you're visiting during the summer, which is something that I really recommend, don't come here in November. <laughs> uh, I would take you to the to the fort- fortress island of Suomenlinna, so you can have a pick a sunny day to go there, and you can have a nice walk there, uh, or have a picnic, go to one of the restaurants in the island, or or to the local brewery. And you can also take a guided tour there if you want to. And also the boat ride to the to the island is quite nice. So you can 
uh, Cedar Helsinki skyline yes. kind of like, which is dominated by the Helsinki Cathedral and so on. And I would also recommend other islands. You know, you can there are boats taking you to, to, to these other islands in next to Helsinki as well, and and the sea is really nice. Uh, and I guess if you're an urban planner, then there are there are these new residential areas that we're now building actually right next to the city center. So there's one that used to be a harbor that we're now changing into a, into a residential area. We're going to have roughly 30,000 new residents in the area and a lot of offices, so mixed use, a lot of social housing. And actually some of the events of the... Um, of the conference that you mentioned were took place in, mm. in, in, in that in that place. So that might interest urban planners. Yeah. Pavu, you've been? Oh yeah, I love it. Helsinki is the best. Um I recommend the summer and that boat ride <laughs> is super fascinating. I mean I think people don't realize what an archipelago style uh, city it is. Mm. But Tuka, I thought we were gonna go to a bar. Are we going to Finland <laughs> where everyone yeah. has a drinking problem? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was I was gonna recommend, but I, I think I, I googled it yesterday. I think it's closed. Did you ever go to this Soviet-themed bar that the Karasmaki brothers had? Yeah, yeah, I, I've been there, and we used to take seminar guests there. Okay. So, so it was closed, I think, in 2019, but I think it reopened in another location. But now, after the okay. pandemic, I'm not sure whether it's open anymore. But the original location is is gone anyway. And I, I shouldn't spoil the idea of it, but it was fascinating when we went. There was no one working. And there's just this old old man in there drinking by himself. And then he's like, oh, come drink with me. And I'm like, okay, wait, what's going on here? <laughs> but it's all part of, the, part of the deal. Okay, so this article is in the Journal of Urban Economics, and it's titled Revisiting the Effects of Housing Transfer Taxes. And your co-authors are, I'm going to let you say their names here. <laughs> uh, so Essi Erola, Oskari Harjunen, and Teemu Lyytikäinen. Perfect. Housing transfer taxes, for those who aren't familiar with the term, are basically sales taxes on real estate. And the rates, in my experience, are usually between 1% and 5% of the sale price. Here in the US, they're often called real estate transfer taxes. And as the name suggests, they usually apply to non-residential property sales as well. So just as an example, if my city has a transfer tax rate of 2% and I sell a home for $1 million, I'll owe $20,000 in real estate transfer taxes. Unlike property taxes, which are usually collected year after year, transfer taxes are only paid when a property is sold or transferred. And since they're based on the sales price, the more you sell for, the more you pay. One upside to transfer taxes is that you are much less likely to have situations where someone can't afford to pay their tax bill. With property taxes, someone's property value might go up such that they owe more on their annual bill, but their income might not keep up with that and they could end up with a, a lien on their property uh, and maybe even in a worst case scenario, they lose their home. Because transfer taxes are collected at sale when sellers are usually at their most cash rich, this is less of a problem. As I said, the subject is close to my heart because I actually wrote a report advocating for higher and more progressive transfer taxes in Los Angeles, which we'll put in the show notes. And now a few years later, we may be on the verge of passing an initiative that would do exactly that, raising about $800 million a year for affordable housing, rent assistance, right to counsel, and other important housing needs. But as I acknowledge in my report, and as the research we're going to discuss here today makes very clear, real estate transfer taxes have their trade-offs as well. 
I advocated for them in Los Angeles because we have very sharp constitutional restrictions on increasing property taxes or frankly making them any more equitable. And so transfer taxes were a sort of second best option, at least from my perspective. But now that we're really moving forward with them, and a few other smaller cities in our region already have adopted them, and a bunch of other places, including various Bay Area cities and Washington State, raised their transfer taxes prior to 2020, it's a good time to take stock of some of the potential downsides here as well. Ideally, this knowledge can inform future changes that will help us get the most benefits out of transfer taxes that we can with the fewest negative consequences and inform other cities or states considering similar policies. So with all of that introduction out of the way, let's talk about the research. Tuka, your primary interest here was how housing transfer taxes affect household mobility. That is whether and to what extent transfer taxes discouraged people from moving because they discouraged people from selling their homes because they're paying more in tax. What do we know about the negative effects of reduced household mobility, and why is there a concern that transfer taxes might have that effect? Yeah, so I guess the first thing to point out here is that that really the effects of transfer taxes depend on whether the housing market is is, is dominated by owner-occupiers or renters. So mm. if renting is the prevalent tenure mode, then I guess transfer taxes should not have you know large effects on mobility. Or in other words, they, they shouldn't affect, you know, which household ends up living in which which housing unit. Uh, of course, there may be some some effects on which landlords happen to own which which housing unit, but maybe maybe that's not a not a huge problem. Mm-hmm. But in a situation when, when when people are predominantly homeowners, like is the like I understand is the case in the U.S. and in Finland, then transfer taxes may affect household mobility. Yeah, but not the case, I should say, in Los Angeles, where about two-thirds or so of our households are renters. It tends to be the case that where prices are highest, you have a higher percentage of renters all over right. the U.S., and I'm sure yeah. all over the world, too. So, like in general, you know, homeowners usually have higher or, or, or larger moving costs uh, than renters because they have to find a buyer f- for their old house, they need to pay broker fees, etc. Uh, and then the transfer taxes come on top of these other costs that are mm-hmm. already there. So why is this? So so what happens here? Maybe maybe a concrete example here would help. Uh, so let's say that there's a seller who is who is willing to sell her house for say two hundred thousand dollars, and there's also a buyer who is willing to pay at most two hundred five dollars for that house. So here we have we have a situation where there are obviously potential gains for trade. So for example, the buyer could um, offer the seller two hundred and three thousand dollars for the for the house and the seller would happily accept that offer however if we were to impose a transfer tax of four uh, percent here on the buyer which is now the finish case the buyer uh, is paying paying the, the, the transfer tax then the buyer would have to offer at least two hundred and eight thousand dollars for the house in order for the seller to get the two hundred thousand that she she would want for the house Mm-hmm. But the buyer is unwilling to do that in this case. So we, we, we are going to lose this, this potential transaction here. So, so why is this a problem then? Um, well, first of all, it, creates, it may create mismatch in the housing market so that households do not live in the housing units that would be most suitable for them in their current situation. But the tax may also create mismatch in the labor market because uh, your place of residence is tightly connected to the to your job location and job market opportunities. And if a better job 
requires a move, for example, then transfer taxes may prohibit people from changing jobs and moving to better better job job opportunities. But of course, this is an ultimately an empirical question whether these are important effects that, that I'm talking about here. Yeah, so it seems to me that the European scholars of housing especially have been more concerned with uh, the connection between housing markets and labor markets than those in the US. And there's this famous Oswald paper that talks about high homeownership rates leading to unemployment because people can't move to where jobs are. I wonder, you know, is Helsinki have that kind of a problem or why you think European scholars are kind of more concerned about household mobility, it seems like, than than those in the US? Yeah, I'm, I'm not I'm not sure why that's the case. Maybe it's because maybe we think that the European labor market is less efficient. We have probably uh, more unemployment than in the US mm-hmm. traditionally. So maybe that's why we're paying more attention to any kind of like yeah, additional frictions that, <laughs> right. that might affect the labor market. Right. Interesting. So before we discuss the Finnish case, which is the subject of your, your study here, and the particular advantages of the detailed data you're using and the innovation in your research design, can you talk through how scholars have typically estimated the mobility impacts of transfer taxes in, in previous research? Sure. So um, so I would say that you know typically we economists we, we try to find situations where you where for some reason you have a, have a treatment group that is affected by a by a by a tax reform and then a control group some individuals or properties who are not affected by the by the tax reform and um, so this is important because you know let, let, let's say that there's a there's a transfer tax increase that applies to everyone and then you want to know whether that tax increase led to lower mobility of, of households but now it's really difficult to disentangle the the effect of the transfer tax uh, from all the other changes in the economy that might take place at the same time as the as the tax reform and this is a very common problem in any any policy evaluation work that you you may be doing so so like i said one way uh, kind of like around this problem is to is to is to find situations where where are uh, for example a tax reform where the tax changes apply only to some individuals or properties but not to others and if i take a good good example from a, from a recent paper for, uh, using data from toronto so what happened there was that a a transfer tax was introduced for properties within the borders of the of the city or the municipality of Toronto, but was not introduced in other municipalities in the greater Toronto area. Mm-hmm. So now, because of this kind of like a natural or what we refer to as quasi experiment, you kind of like have a treatment group and a control group. And with data before and after the tax introduction, you can kind of like tease out the causal effect of the tax increase. With the, with, and, and the idea with this design, which is often often referred to as, as the difference in differences design, is that, that the control group now here, in a sense, captures all the changes that affect both groups in the same way. And if there's any additional difference or any if any additional differences arise after the, the, the tax reform, then we're kind of like quite confidently we can argue that this is because of the of the tax increase and not not some other other case, and we are able to estimate the causal effect in a sense. Mm-hmm. Can, can you tell me? So there's like on econ Twitter, there's a lot of jokes about uh, <laughs> difference and difference. Is, is there anything funny or interesting for the normal person from that conversation? Well, yeah, it seems that every every week there's another <laughs> paper <laughs> showing you know different problems with uh, difference in differences estimation. But I guess you know 
I would call it progress now, kind of like we, we now right. know much more about what we're actually estimating and what type of estimators right. we can use here to to tease out the causal effect. So I'm kind of kind of like happy, and I'm also really happy that these papers also come come up with a solution to the problem that they're that they're finding. Right. So <laughs> so that's yeah, nice. That's always good. Not just yeah. pointing out flaws. Yeah. Okay, so let's turn to your case study. There was a change to the housing transfer tax rate on certain kinds of housing in Finland in 2013, and you were able to use that change to test the hypothesis that higher transfer taxes lead to lower mobility rates. Before we talk about those changes, the structure of housing ownership in Finland is interesting and, and worth learning a little bit about. And as you said, you know the, the home ownership rate really does matter here for mobility and, and how transfer taxes affect them. I'd be curious to hear just what the, the ownership rate looks like in Finland. But also, there's an interesting thing here where, unlike the US, all owner-occupied multifamily housing in Finland is cooperative ownership, not condominium. And so what is the what is the difference there and, and what does the emphasis on co-ops actually mean for Finnish households in a sort of practical day-to-day terms? So yeah, this this is this may be just a terminal terminology issue because we were kind of like unsure how to translate the the system that we have into English. So so mm-hmm. why don't I explain the Finnish case and then you can tell me whether that's actually exactly the same <laughs> okay, same as you okay. have in the US. So I mean we do have co-ops here too. They're just like yeah. only in New York pretty much. Yeah, <laughs> they're, they're yeah. very in San Francisco, there's like one in Santa Monica. Yeah, they're yeah. they're pretty rare. <laughs> yeah. So so in Finland all residential buildings with with multiple housing units are kind of like legally set up as as housing cooperatives or housing companies that was the alternative translation that we thought about using so so the idea here is that the, that the co-op they own the building and sometimes sometimes they have multiple buildings in the same lot and they in some cases they own the land as well sometimes they rent it from the city uh, and and when you're buying a, a housing unit in a housing co-op, you're buying shares in the co-op that correspond to a particular housing unit. Mm-hmm. And and owning these shares in practice implies that you, you own the unit. So you can either live there yourself, and then you're a homeowner or an owner-occupier, or you can rent it out to some other household, and then, then you're a landlord. So that that's the way it works. And, and these co-ops often have, what's also relevant for the reform here is that they often have outstanding loans taken out for, for example, during the construction period uh, or because of some major renovation done, done later on to the building. And then these loans are allocated to the, to the shares and the owner of the shares is then responsible for, for the corresponding portion of the loan's interest payments and, and repayment and so on. Pablo, that sounds to me like co-ops here, because condos, you actually own the individual unit and co-ops, exactly. you just own sort of a share in the building right. that right. maybe sort of represents your unit and gives you the right to use your unit, but it's not the same as owning the unit itself. Yep, I think that's exactly correct. I mean, okay. the, you know, the practical implication for the U.S. is I think condos are easier to get a mortgage for. I think we don't have a good financing system yet set up to buy co-op shares you know, or is not as good as the condo, mm-hmm. but that's more a, a problem with our housing finance system. Um, I yeah. guess maybe even the bigger difference, though, is that if I understand correctly, in in Finland, most multifamily buildings are owner occupied, rather than owned by one entity and have the units rented out. Is that the case? Yeah, and then they are also mixed, kind of like you have some owner occupiers and some renters living in the same building. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What's the home ownership rate in So in the, the roughly 60% of households 
and roughly 70% of individuals are owner occupiers okay. and then slightly half of those are slightly more than half of those are in single family houses it's amazing how consistent that is you know the us is 66% uh 65% france is 60% finland 60% canada's probably right in that range too despite pretty different you know policies around all this stuff so now let's actually talk about the tax, the tax reform. What was the tax reform and what was the government's rationale for making the change that they did? So, so, the, so the tax reform increased the tax burden on, on these apartments in these co-ops, uh, while the tax treatment of single-family houses uh, remained un, unchanged. So uh, until the, the end of February 2013, the transfer tax rate was 4% for houses and remained 4, 4% for single-family houses, and it was 1.6% for the apartments in, in co-ops. And, and in both cases, the, the tax base then was the transaction price, mm-hmm. whereas after you know, March the first of uh, March in 2013, the, the transfer tax for apartments, the tax rate was increased to uh, 2%. And at the same time, the tax base was broadened so that it would include any outstanding co-op loan assigned to that mm. apartment. So not only did the tax rate go up by 0.4 percentage points, but also the the value right. being taxed on a sale was often higher because it now included these uh, the, the loan balances. Yeah, exactly. And I, I guess the... The, the rationale for the reform was mostly fiscal, so they wanted to collect more more taxes, and they had an idea that, you know, people really don't care about transfer taxes when they're thinking about moving. They move anyway. Mm-hmm. This is such a small tax that it doesn't really matter. And the other rationale was to make the make the tax treatment of these two different uh, homeowner homeowner types more similar. So they were increasing the the tax rates would be more similar, but they were also kind of like directly worried about. So we had a phenomenon, and it's still going on, that these co-ops, especially the new new buildings, they had really high co-op loans. And I guess one re- people thought that one reason was that, that that makes the tax base for the first mm. buyer really low. And, and, and people were saying that that's because of, of the tax. So let's let's increase the, the widen, broaden the tax base. So get let's get rid of that incentive. Right. But I, I think that that hasn't changed the... The amount of of, uh, of loans that these co-ops have. So only one way to find out if that was the the reason <laughs> the loan balances were so big. I guess I'm, maybe I'm not. surprised <laughs> that the I'm surprised that the transfer tax isn't progressive, given that you know I don't know if it's still true, but I think like even speeding tickets are tied to <laughs> yeah income levels yeah. in Finland, right? So I, I'm surprised that it's not a progressive rate based on the value of. Was that not part of the conversation? Uh, not that I remember. I, I don't think that we talked about that. Yeah. Okay. Hmm. Yeah. And, and just so folks are know what that means, that just means a higher rate on higher value sales. So like if it's a $200,000 home, maybe it's 2%. If it's a $500,000 home, maybe it's 3%, that kind of thing. You mean if it's a $5 million home, that's where the trigger <laughs> We'll get there. We'll change. get there. <laughs> so now that we understand this policy context a little bit better, um, can you tell us more about the research design that you use? Specifically, tell us about your interest in the potential for spillover effects and and what that means and how you address it in a way that other studies haven't been able to or maybe haven't thought to. And it might make sense to mention really the the quality and the breadth of the the data on Finnish households here too. Yeah. So let let me start with the data. So 
Uh, so we use population-wide uh, individual register data from 2005 to 2016. So we have multiple years before the tax reform and multiple years after. Uh, so And the data include information on individuals' incomes, education level, family structure, and so on. And we also know the, the housing unit for each individual at the end of each year in the data. And crucially, we know whether the household is a, is a renter, whether they, whether they are owner-occupiers, whether they live in, in co-ops or in single-family houses. So we can assign all individuals into, into a treatment or a control group here. So, okay, so ultimately what we want to know here is that, so what happened to the, to the treatment group, which is the apartment owners here, if there was no tax increase? And then we would want to compare this to what actually happened to the same group and then the difference would be the causal effect that, we, that we're interested in here. But obviously, here's the, the problem here is that we don't observe this counterfactual for the treatment group when they're not treated. Right. So the idea of the design here, the definitive design, is that, that we use the control group as the kind of like the missing counterfactual. So, so in the absence of the tax increase, mobility in the treat, treatment group would have developed in the same way as it did in the control group. That, that's kind of like the assumption that we're relying on here. And we can test this assumption indirectly by, by looking at what happened, you know, before the treatment. So by, by showing what happened in, in treatment and control groups before the reform, whether they developed similarly or whether they had common, common trends before the treatment, kind of like allows us to indirectly test whether that, that, that assumption is true or not. But at the same time, I'm coming to the spillovers here, this design works only if the control group is not indirectly affected by the tax reform. So if homeowners in the treatment group living in, in, in the apartments in the co-ops move less often because of the tax increase, then maybe the homeowners also in the control group are indirectly affected because they have less trading partners to interact with. Mm-hmm. So, in the tre- so households in the treatment group are less likely to, less willing to move now. So maybe that affects, you know, whether the tree, uh, better the control group uh, households can find out. Uh, there might uh, just be fewer fewer homes on the market, yeah, apartments exactly. specifically for them yeah, to move yeah, into. Exactly. People people move between groups. Yeah, yeah exactly, yeah. exactly. <laughs> you don't have house people and apartment people, <laughs> no. and uh, they never <laughs> mix. Yeah. <laughs> and of course, this 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 might be a problem. You know, so the, the the definitive estimate in this case would be biased towards zero because it would be a combination of the of the true effect. And the spillover effect. And the spillover effect is, is, is now the indirect effect of, of the reform on homeowners in the control group. And I guess the key contribution of our paper, because there, there have been other papers on transfer taxes before us, the, the key contribution is kind of like take this spillover problem seriously and try to quantify the bias caused by this, this spillover effect. And we can do this basically because our data is so good that we can actually see you know, moves between the treatment and control groups uh, before and after the, the reform so mm. that we can first of all show that it's true that people move from, from single family houses to, to apartments and vice versa. So the, there's a potential for this problem here. So that's one thing. So a lot of the other papers have used transaction data. So not data on household mobility, but rather how many transactions take place. And in, mm-hmm. in, in those cases, you usually don't have any information on on these potential spillovers. It's impossible to observe, you know, whether there's even potentially a problem there. So with this kind of like, I'm not going to go into the details here. It's it's a modeling exercise that we do here. So so we use the information that we have in the data on these on these mobility rates across the 
different housing market segments and also our definitive estimate that we get by running the usual definitive estimation there. So we kind of like put in these uh, pre-reform mobility rates across different groups into the model and our definitive estimate. And in a sense, we ask the model to, to tell us, you know, what happens to the mobility rate in the control group, given these numbers that we kind of like put into the model. And then we can, in a sense, back out the, the spillover effect using, using this approach. This is, of, of course, not a, a perfect <laughs> approach, but... but uh, they never are. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so what did you find? What was the impact on mobility of the tax increase for the treatment group, for the, for the apartment owners and sellers and buyers? And then what did it look like when you included these spillover effects into the house market, uh, not just the apartment market? Yeah, so so first some basic numbers here. So the so before the reform, the the annual mobility rate in the treatment group was roughly seven point five percent. So in other words, seven point five percent of the homeowners in the living in these apartments moved during a given year. Mm-hmm. And so what we found was that that the mobility rate decreased in this treatment group because of the tax tax increase by roughly seven point two percent. And this estimate takes into account the, the spillover uh, problem here. And then what happened to the um, to the control group? What we find is that these spillover effects are are important. It's important to take the, the, them into account. So we found that due to the tax reform, the mobility rate decreased in the control group by some one point six percent. So it's higher for the the treatment group, the apartment owners, and there is also an impact on the house owners. Got it. Right, right. Hey, this is Shane coming in after the recording. I wanted to insert a little more explanation here because I realized that even as I was re-listening to this, I was having some trouble understanding exactly how this was done and why this was different from the traditional approach. The difference in difference calculation Tuka is referring to here, the diff in diff, is the difference between the change in mobility rates for apartment owners and the change in mobility rates for house owners following the tax increase on apartment sales. So it's the difference between those two differences in mobility rates. If a reduction in mobility for apartment owners also reduces the number of trading partners for house owners such that house owners move less often, then the difference between the two will actually be smaller and it'll make the impact of the tax seem smaller as well. In Tuka's and his colleagues' research, They found that mobility for apartment owners fell by 7.2%, but mobility for house owners also fell by 1.6%. The difference between those two changes in mobility rates, the diff in diff, is 5.6%. He's making the point that the gap between the changing apartment owner and house owner mobility rates doesn't tell the whole story because they both fell, and there's good reason to believe that they both fell because of the tax increase. Usually in this kind of diff-in-diff analysis, you would say that the impact was just however much more or less the treatment group, which is the apartment owners whose taxes went up, changed relative to the control group, which is the house owners whose taxes didn't change. But that doesn't make sense here because the impact is spilling over into the control group. The spillover is the 1.6% reduction that's affecting both the apartment owners and the house owners in addition to the 5.6% reduction that's affecting only the apartment owners. Okay, back to the interview. Tuka, that all sounds pretty convincing. 
but I'm worried about potential threats to validity of this kind of research. Um, were there concerns you had in your study? I mean, or anything interesting you'd like to point out in terms of issues that you, I mean, in addition to this spillover consideration, what else might have might have made these estimates a little bit off? Yeah, so the, the problem here would be that, you know, if something happened exactly at the same time as the, as the mm -hmm. tax reform that affected the, the groups differently, then we, we would mm -hmm. have a problem. And, you know, <laughs> and it's hard to hard to tell whether whether you know any definitive analysis has this problem, but at least we can say that we are not aware of any other major policy changes coinciding with the mm -hmm. tax reform that would affect housing markets and especially ones that would affect the treatment and control groups differently. Right. And also, I think that since we have so much data before the reform, although going back all the way to 2005, and we can show that the, the mobility rates in treatment and control groups, they follow each other quite nicely, even during mm -hmm. the financial crisis of 2008 and 2009. So we're kind of like, that's pretty convincing evidence that that uh, of this, uh, this assumption that yeah. Of common sense, although this is not, not, not direct evidence of uh, of uh, saying that nothing else could have happened at the, at exactly the same time as as the tax reform, but and the fact that you don't use transactions, I mean, did you consider how you know are people suddenly moving without selling much more than they had before? Yeah, this would be an interesting thing to look at, but unfortunately, I mean, we don't have. I wouldn't imagine it's a huge problem. Yeah, but it could, probably not. Could be happening. So so. Currently, we don't have this type of data, so we don't have asset mm. ownerships for these for mm -hmm. these people in the data. So we don't know whether they end up kind of like owning their old apartment once they move. Right. And how about timing? I know you looked at this as well, that maybe people are, they knew that the tax increase was coming and it was actually even delayed by a few months. And so maybe they tried to sell their home before to kind of evade that tax or get out ahead of it. Um, yeah. What did you find there? Because I, know, as I said, you did look into that. Yeah. So, so our we cannot look at that using our household data because we only observe people at the end of the year. But we we have monthly level data on overall transactions in these different uh, groups. And what we find is that there's a really clear kind of like people anticipate the reform. They really sell, you know, just a couple of months before the tax increase, and there's a huge increase in in transactions. And then after the reform, there's a clear reduction, but then it comes back to kind of like... Which I got to say, seems like for a 0.4% percentage point tax <laughs> increase, it's it's kind of surprising yeah. that people are making this huge decision. I mean, I'm sure many of them had already been thinking like, I think I'm going to sell at some point. Yeah. I might as well push it up. But it's, I don't know, I guess 0.4% still adds uh, up to loss, hundreds loss or you know, thousands of dollars <laughs> in, in many cases. So it's it's not nothing. Yeah. But it's it's pretty easy to kind of like just, you know, bring you, bring the sail forward for a few months. Yeah. That right. that's easy. But I mean but what's more surprising is that the actual mobility results that we that we find. Yeah, they're pretty large. What about so um in addition to the kind of this overall effect of the tax, you know, you are able to look into several more specific impacts, including welfare and labor market outcomes, as well as how how big of a house the move people were thinking to make uh, was affected by the tax differences between households that were upsizing, downsizing. I don't know, Shane, I thought the most interesting outcomes were on this kind of how far people are moving and whether this tax had a differential impact on short moves mm -hmm. versus long moves, um, as well as kind of moves to bigger, much bigger houses or moves to much smaller houses. Uh, maybe 
Tuka, if you want to tell us about uh, the findings on those two first and others that you found interesting. Yeah, so the labor market question was, um, there's, like you said, there's a lot of talk about labor market effects of the trans- these transfer taxes in, in a lot of countries. So so it was interesting, but but we also, our initial idea was that that we were expecting to see, you know, close to zero effects for, for these moves that are related to labor markets, because mm-hmm. it seemed to us that labor market related moves are kind of like more valuable to to households compared to moves that happen because of uh, right. relocate, relocating within a city or kind of like doing a size adjustment um, right. to the unit. So we were thinking that people would not turn down kind of like job offers or right. something like yeah, that. Yeah, because the idea of is the, that I'm not going to move to that new job in a new city because of this additional $5,000 yeah, tax yeah, on my exactly, house sale. Yeah. Exactly. And it's not $5,000 when we're talking about an additional yeah. 0.4 percentage of points. <laughs> But yeah, even yeah. you know, yeah, it would have to be a lot of money to change, or a very, yeah. or a very minor job upgrade. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and, uh, yeah, and we do find that you know the so we're looking at moves that that are more than fifty kilometers or or less than fifty kilometers. That's an ad hoc kind of like a I don't know where that threshold came from, but you know, sounds good. Yeah, yeah. So what what we actually found was that okay, yeah, the the effect is smaller for these longer moves, but there's still an effect. So th- so we cannot rule out that the that, that the transfer tax actually has labor market effects as well, but they mm-hmm. are small. Kind of like the, the effects on moving is is much smaller than 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 on on moves that happen kind of like within a labor market or within a city. Mm-hmm. Interesting. And then you have a finding about how transfer taxes seem to affect upward moves, meaning moves when people buy larger or more expensive homes, but not downward moves to less expensive or smaller homes. In the model researchers have of how people move, and this was kind of news to me, but it makes sense, there's this asymmetry between upward and downward moves. Basically, people move multiple times throughout their lives, uh, but they tend to make smaller, more incremental upgrades to their housing or to their neighborhood quality um, each time they move up. But they might only downsize once or twice in their lives, you know, closer to the end of their lives, presumably, all at once. Could you talk about that and why an increased transfer tax might affect upsizing but not downsizing? Sure. So I guess this is related to the concept of of a housing career. So I guess a typical housing career might be that first you get married, then you have a child, then maybe a few years later you'll have another child and so on. And while your family is growing, you, the need for housing space increases as well. And people usually upsize as their family size increases. Mm-hmm. But things may change when you introduce a transfer tax to the picture here. So, so instead of upsizing kind of like one bedroom at a time, it could be that you upsize two bedrooms at a time so that you, you don't have to move as often. You, you, get, to, you get to avoid one, one uh, transfer tax payment by doing yeah. that. So maybe you live longer in a small apartment with, with with one child, and then buy a much larger house where you can fit your whole kind of like uh, family, or or you upsize when when the second child child is born, mm-hmm. and not when the first mm-hmm. child, child. Or is maybe born. yeah, like upsize a little early before you really need the extra space. Yeah, that, that's yeah. A, yeah, 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 exactly. Whereas when you're moving, when you're downsizing, uh, then these moves they they may be more often related to different types of unplanned events like like a divorce or unemployment or death of a spouse mm-hmm. where you might think that these tax incentives don't play as as big of a role as in these when you're moving up the housing right. ladder. It's not exactly voluntary either way, so you just yeah, gotta do it. Yeah. 
I'm not saying that this is the correct story, but this is at least consistent with the findings that we have here, have in the paper. And I think, you know, in cases where it's not involuntary, you know, it's not a divorce, it's not the death of a spouse, maybe it's just like you're an empty nester couple and you just want to downsize. And I think in that case, you've owned your home probably for a long time. You probably have quite a few resources compared to the average person. And so, and your new home is going to be less expensive than your old one probably. So the idea that like, this tax is going to deter you from that just doesn't make as much sense. So you also estimate how the transfer tax increase impacted welfare, which economists use to refer to the general welfare of society rather than the way the word is often used in the U.S. to mean basically government support. And you find that the overall impact is negative, basically that the reduction to welfare is greater than the increase in revenues euro for euro. But what I wasn't really clear on is how you arrived at the the change in welfare itself, what that calculation looked like. So I'd like to hear you talk about that. But just to kind of expand on this first, welfare to me seems to be a, a very encompassing concept. And so it should take into account the negative impacts to mobility and housing consumption, but also the positive impacts of the revenues raised by the increased taxes, the things that that revenue will be spent on. And I think where I'm struggling with this is that a higher tax might lead to fewer moves, but you know the quality of life benefits of that move might be pretty marginal. I think, it, in fact, they would almost have to be if such a small tax increase were to discourage someone or stop someone from moving. But on the revenue side, those euros might help someone who's homeless get back into housing or help a very poor person pay for rent or food. And those seem to me to have much greater value, even if the dollar or euro value is is the same. And I guess I'm getting into kind of philosophical territory. It sounds like utilitarianism. <laughs> yes, about we're talking about the marginal utility of money and, and how one dollar means more, a lot more to a poor person than a rich person, which we don't need to go down that road. But I'd just be curious to hear a bit more about the limitations of this metric, and maybe that can lead us to some other discussion of the benefits and costs and trade-offs of transfer taxes. Yeah, sure. So <laughs> this might be a little bit difficult to to unpack, but um, <laughs> so first of all, the welfare loss here is simply the fact that you know the example that I gave earlier of the buyer and the seller, we're now foregoing kind of like these mutually beneficial trades mm-hmm. because of the. Transfer that. So that's kind of like basically the welfare effect here. And I guess the, the number here that you're talking about, it's, it's, um, or the metric, it's most useful when we're actually comparing different ways of collecting mm-hmm. the same amount of tax revenue. Mm, okay. So, so let's take the, the amount of tax revenue as given and let's think about what are the different types, types of tax instruments that we can use and then compare the welfare kind of like these welfare losses from from these different types of taxes. Yeah. So that so I, I think that it's kind of like useful in this kind of like a limited more limited sense. Yeah. Well, I can I can also understand that, you know, I can say, well, if you spent those revenues helping a homeless person, that that's going to have more value, but like for one, I don't know that that's how that money is going to be spent. It's all kind of just part of the mm-hmm. government budget and so it's sort of cherry picking a little bit to say it that way. I think thinking about it in terms of how does this way of raising that amount of revenue versus that way is is a really helpful way of thinking about it. Pablo, you had something? No, I was just going to say, yeah, it's not a total cost benefit analysis. Yeah. It's just comparing different kinds of costs. Okay. And usually the 
if we think about you know what what are good good, good taxes so in, so in economics we we usually think that a a good tax is such that it doesn't affect the behavior of the taxpayers or that it should affect the behavior as little as possible mm-hmm. you know of course we have corrective taxes like you know taxes on negative externalities that we the whole whole idea is we to affect want to yeah, exactly. so we want to affect behavior but when we have kind of like taxes where we just want to have you know tax revenue then we kind of like think that a good tax is such that it doesn't really affect the uh, the behavior of the taxpayers and i guess the the underlying assumption there is that that people are kind of like the best judges of what they want to do so mm-hmm. if some people wants to move and then we put a tax in place that which prohibits that move then then we argue that that family would have been in a better situation if they actually had made the move. So we are going to talk about land value taxes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So if I bring the home, the, the, the point point home here by comparing the the transfer tax to a, to a property tax or or a land value tax. So yeah. so a, a well designed property tax like a like a land value tax is like a lump sum tax, meaning that. This is again a bit of economic jargon here, but it means that the property tax on land does not affect the behavior of the landowner. And this is because, you know, whatever the best use of the land was before the property tax, it still is Mm. the same after Mm. the tax is introduced. Like, let's say that you have a landowner who thinks that, okay, the best use for for my land here is to build a multi-story building here of of a particular size. Then the government just says that, Oh, you have to pay, you know, ten thousand in in property taxes based on land value. There's nothing you can do about it because if if land value is not decided by the landowner, if it's decided by you know markets, mm-hmm. uh, then then there's nothing that the that the landowner can do here to avoid the tax. So it's still the best option for him to to build that same sized building right. to, because the tax to, on, on because the, the taxes on the land and not the improvements not on the building. Yeah, yeah, exactly. There's no yeah. downside to them to building that 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 structure. Yeah. yeah. You you talked about distortion earlier, and I did want to ask this question about you know in a way the transfer tax as it was prior to the 2013 reform was already distorting because it was a higher tax on houses, detached homes, as opposed to apartments, multifamily units. I mean, could it could this be seen as a way of just rather than reducing welfare, but actually reducing the distortion that was there? And I say this as someone who generally thinks we should actually tax <laughs> detached homes at a higher rate because they do have some negative externalities relative to uh, multifamily. But like, is that a reasonable way of thinking about this or am I, am I missing something there? No, no, I think that's that's comp- completely right. So you, you can think about the reform as kind of like bringing the tax treatment of these two building types closer together. Uh, so there's probably no no good reason to have separate tax rates for, for, for apartments and single family houses. At the same time, I would say that I would favor a tax, uh, a revenue neutral tax reform where we would have, have the same tax rate on these, on apartments and single family houses, but you wouldn't increase the overall tax tax burden mm, or, right. or the tax revenue that you raise raise through transfer. So taxes. you might actually lower the tax rate on houses. Yeah. Yeah. I, 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 I have a side eye at that. I'm not, I'm not sure. I, I'm not sure I'm on board with that one. <laughs> what, Tuka, I'm, I'm so curious. We, we were going to ask it earlier, but I think now is a good time about kind of the general package of property related taxes in a city like Helsinki. So how high are property taxes 
and are they calculated based on land and improvements and are there are, are development taxes widely used as well so kind of requiring developers to pay uh, to fund public services when they when they apply for a permit so in general property tax so property taxes are collected by the by the municipalities which is the local level mm-hmm. but the transfer tax is collected by the central government so that's uh, that's one one important thing here like the reverse uh, of the US so, in in some respects <laughs> so um so property taxes are pretty low in Finland they have been increasing over, over the years here we have a separate tax rate that applies to land residential lots and a separate tax on on buildings mm-hmm. and we are actually now introducing a pure land value tax in the, in in the coming years because the, the current uh-huh. land value tax that tax rate also applies to business properties to business buildings so you you're not able to increase currently you're not able to increase the property tax on land without increasing the property tax on on business buildings as well but that's going to change uh, shortly so what was the rest of the yeah, question? what was the, and is there a is there a tax a widely used tax on development meaning if a developer wants to build a building do they have to pay not a tax to per se public services yeah not a not a tax that you always would have to pay but but municipalities kind of like they they are allowed to make these deals that there's a fee in for in fee involved if you want to mm. kind of like develop a land and okay. that is municipality specific so there's no I general see. Sounds like impact fees, like we have here, basically. So I guess the important thing here about transfer taxes and property taxes is that, so it might be difficult to kind of like, oh, you want to lower the transfer tax and increase property taxes, but it's difficult to do because it's, yeah, the coordination might be difficult. Yeah. Well, and I think just people, in my experience, have more negative feelings toward property taxes just as a general rule than they do toward transfer taxes. Maybe because they're just not super familiar with transfer taxes, but I think the fact that transfer taxes only hit once, you know, the time of sale, you know, you might sell multiple times in your life, but um, it's not this, this year after year thing. I've come to appreciate that it's like property taxes and gas taxes are the two that people are the most irrational about. And they're just, they hate them no matter what. They never support them going up. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, I, I've noticed that. <laughs> so we started to talk about, you know, alternatives and welfare and all of this. And you find that transfer taxes have this negative impact on mobility. And because of that, they also negatively impact welfare in, in some important ways. But there are better and worse kinds of taxes, as that that cost of public funds ratio that you alluded to measures. And all of these different kinds of taxes have costs. So do you think they still make sense, transfer taxes make sense, if alternatives like land value taxes, like property taxes more generally, are maybe non-starters politically, or in the case of California here, unconstitutional without you know a statewide ballot initiative? And in addition to that question of do they make sense as as alternatives, are there ways to limit some of these unintended consequences, whether reduced mobility or otherwise? So I guess, yeah. So I guess if if your hands are really tied in terms of what tax instruments you have at your disposal, then and you have to collect some taxes, then then obviously you you need to tax what you can. And I, I guess the... Uh, have to is always, uh, you know, questionable, <laughs> but like often well, we would like to, to yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And this is, by the way, probably one of the reasons that, that we actually have a transfer tax in the first place, because it used to be 
the most easy way to tax people. You you know, compared mm-hmm. to wealth, for example, you can mm-hmm. it's easy to measure. You can see the transaction taking place. You can see the price, and you can tax it. But uh, for example, it's much more difficult to estimate the value of wealth or even measure income correctly and something like that. And to collect it, because if someone has all their wealth in stock, then you can't really force them to sell it or people don't really like to do that. Or if it's all in fancy paintings, like, you know, it's just hard to actually assess and collect the taxes um, compared to transfer taxes, because like there's a bunch yeah, of money yeah. trading hands but, right, yeah. right at that moment. Yeah, but I guess that's kind of like that used to be the case. I think that with current technology, with with mm-hmm. income yeah. taxes and consumption taxes, like the value added, added tax that we have in Europe, you can kind of like have more efficient taxes that you can actually collect pretty easily. So, right. I wonder do 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 you think people think about this as a wealth tax or kind of part of a redistribution model of approach to taxation, or is it just a pragmatic way for the government to to get more money. To me, it seems like it's a pragmatic way to get, get more money. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, and that's why, because if it were thought of in a kind of wealth tax sense, then you would want to have a progressive rate to tax wealthier individuals. Higher. Yeah. And how about the different ways of structuring this? You know, I, I guess I'll, I'll mention here in LA, I, I said at the beginning that we have this ballot initiative that we're going to be voting on in November. And that would increase transfer taxes only on properties valued over $5 million or $5 million and up. And I will say, although I support that initiative, I do think that threshold is way too high. But one feature of that approach is that it won't affect the vast majority of home buyers and home sellers, even in a place as expensive as LA. It's really going to be limited to, you know, the ultra luxury single family homes and then apartments, basically, and, and, and commercial properties and so forth. So do you think that approach is superior, you know, overall, or is it maybe just ultimately trading one set of costs and benefits for a different set of costs and benefits? Yeah, so I'm not super familiar with the LA case here, but I guess in in general terms, we economists tend to think that we should have, you know, broad tax bases with very little kind of like exemptions and and low rates. Mm -hmm. So that would be the, the way to go here instead of having, you know, a lot of exemptions, you know, and, uh, right. And that's, that's what, you know, when we, when Professor Manville and I get together and talk about the cause and benefits of different tax structures, <laughs> <As> you, <do. laughs> uh, we, <laughs> you know, the way I frame it is, you know, if you think about taxes on development, uh, you're going to raise much less money because the base is so narrow. Well, then you talk about tran- taxes on transfers, you're, you're expanding the base considerably because there's many more sales than new buildings being built. But then a property tax, right? That's the ideal because mm. or a land value tax because the base is is every property, yeah, right? Yeah, I like that way of thinking about it. And I will say our our, our buddy uh, council member Alex Fish helped author a ballot initiative for Culver City for 2020 that they that did pass that increased transfer taxes in a progressive way on properties worth 1.5 million dollars or more. And I think the initial estimate. At the time it was drafted, was this would raise about eight million dollars a year, but uh, in fact there have been a few very large sales of you know five hundred million dollar properties or something uh, just in the past several months, and so this tax that was supposed to raise eight million a year, and maybe it will consistently do that by you know with the sale of these one and a half million, two million dollar detached homes, but 
because of those giant sales, it, it's raising like 20 something, $30 million in this year alone. It's sort of the, you've got the broad base to rely on, but then you get these, these, these giant spikes at times, which is, you know, extra money. And for a city of what, 30,000 people, an extra $30 million can go a long way. <laughs> well, I want to, I want to give you, as we close out here, Tuka, I want to give you the opportunity to let our listeners know if there's anywhere they can find you or, you know, what you're working on. But I did, I did want to mention your other cool paper. This is, this is what I, I I just wanted to make sure uh, I haven't even read it in detail. I've only skimmed through it, but it's maybe the best title of a paper I've read in a long time. It's called, I don't care to belong to any club that will have me as a member. empirical analysis of <laughs> municipal mergers i am looking forward to reading it it's, it's almost a decade old at this point but uh i just want to congratulate you on a really excellent title for that article thank you that's my only marxian <laughs> work that, I, that, that i've done you know that's a krauto marx quote nice <laughs> but i was going to mention the uh you you also did a residential moves estimate of impact of new housing construction on on the city and the spirit of Asquith and Mast, so I would point people to that paper as well. Using the same data, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah or even actually better, now we have better location data that we were able to mm. they're able to use in that paper. So, Alright, well, Tuka Sarima, thank you for coming on the Housing Voice podcast. Thanks for having me. You can read more about Tuka's research on our website, lewis.ucla.edu. Show notes and a transcript of the interview are there too. The UCLA Lewis Center is on Facebook and Twitter. I'm on Twitter at Shane D. Phillips and Pavo is at El Pavo. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next time.